0: Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street every week. We bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you are about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Yield Street webinar. We will give attendees another minute or so to get settled, and then we will begin. While we wait, I have just a couple of housekeeping items to run through. Uh, First, be sure to visit www.yieldstreet.com to learn more about our offerings and sign up to receive the latest updates. And second, we will be answering questions for the last 10 minutes of this webinar. So please be sure to submit any that you may have through the Q&A box. Thank you all so much for joining us today. We are going to be discussing what lies ahead in the art lending industry. If you don't recognize the title of today's webinar, It's a reference to a quote by Andy Warhol, which says, being good in business is the most fascinating kind of art. Making money is art and working is art and good business is the best art. So today we'll be talking about the impact of the economy and the new administration and what the impact could be on the art business and specifically art loans. The structure of our conversation today will be candid and forum-like, so I do encourage you all to drop any questions you may have into the Q&A box. I will do my best to make sure that we get to all of the questions as we go, but if we do miss any, we will be sure to reach out and respond to those questions via email shortly after the webinar. In case we haven't met before, my name is Giovanna Quattrone and I am the Art Research and Valuation Specialist on the Athena Art Finance team here at Yield Street. It's such a pleasure to be hosting this webinar today. And I'm incredibly lucky to work alongside our guest every day. And I'm thrilled to be able to introduce her. Many of you may already know her from previous webinars. Today, I am joined by Cynthia Sachs, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer of Athena Art Finance at Yield Street. Cynthia, welcome to today's webinar. Great to be here, Giovanna. Thank you. Okay, so let's dive right into our first topic, which I'm sure is on everyone's mind, the economy and the presidency. With just one week until we kick off the start of President-elect Joe Biden's first 100 days in office, what are some of the potential impacts of his proposed economic policies to the art and art lending markets?
2: Thanks, Giovanna. It's a really dynamic question. Um, first, wanna say I'm so happy to be here and be joining everyone today to talk about what's happening with the current state, the new presidency, the economic outlook, and its impact on the art market. For everyone on this call, (laughs) I guess I'll stay away from today's current events. Uh, It's clearly a sticky topic, but I want to highlight four important things that we know as we enter 2021 and how it's going to impact the art market and how the art market may be affected. First of all, we know that President-elect Biden will take office on January 20th. So we will have a Democratic president. We also know that we'll have a Democratic Senate that will more easily push through changes in policy like government stimulus. The Fed uh, has reiterated its mandate to keep interest rates low by continuing their bond buying program until the economy is back on its feet. And fourthly, we have a vaccine underway uh, to get us to the other side of COVID with herd immunity hopefully being achieved by the end of the year. While this generally points to, uh, you know, these efforts essentially point to a weak economy and efforts to make it stronger with fiscal and monetary policies, which will attempt to stave off a double digit uh, or double dip, I should say, recession, there is growing expectation that an inflection point will be reached uh, when the combination of these actions comes together, which will lead to an inflationary economic environment. As we've seen recently, the 10-year Treasury yield briefly hit almost 1.2% this week, which is essentially a 100% increase from the early May 2020 low of 50 basis points. So with that, there is concern that higher interest rates will hurt the stock market's continuing record-setting pace, and companies will need to pay more for their debt capital, lowering their earnings per share. Further, the bond market, as we know, yields rise, bond prices fall. So there is expected weakness also on the credit side. So now, having said that, we have the traditional markets looking to be weaker in 2021. And so what does that mean for the art market? Given expectations of of this weakness in 2021, many investors look to hard assets, to real assets that typically do well in inflationary environments. This includes not just real estate and commodities, but physical assets like art, um, which many of you might've heard me say many times uh, last year as well, very much it's a prediction. So last year was a much more murky um, kind of view into what 2021 was gonna look like in terms of inflation. But it's interesting to see over the last couple of weeks how it is ticking up and people are now, you know, raising their antennas a bit um, in terms of that. So um, what do I expect in the art market? I actually um, expect it to outperform. Over the next few years, particularly in light of the fact that these are generally rare objects in the art market, particularly in the part of the market where Athena focuses, which is the blue chip part of the market. And supply, as we've seen from consigners and the auctions last year were very difficult to procure. So we're in a low supply, uh, we think high demand environment. And so we think that 2021 is going to be um, a shining year for art and art valuations.
1: Okay, you made some, some great points. So we'll just have to wait and see what happens over the next few months. Let's take a step away from politics and transition to the, some of the changes that we're seeing in art and how they could affect Athena's business. In the latter half of 2020, we saw an increased interest in emerging artists with works at lower price points doing quite well. Mm-hmm. What does this mean for Athena?
2: Right, great question. Giovanna, so so to be clear for everyone, Athena's investment policy as a lender currently prohibits us from lending against more risky emerging artists. And that's because it's difficult for us to get comfortable with these artists' short track records and ability to maintain and hold current valuations. However, it's very important for us to understand the dynamic of the art market and to keep on top of it um, as the art market changes and trends actually change. Um, So if trends are kind of stepping away from the more established artists and into more emerging artists, it's very important for us to know that um, dynamic. That's because over time, eligible artists that we lend against uh, will change. And Athena, as most of you know, not only uses art experts such as Giovanna to aid our investment decision-making process, but we heavily rely on hard data that is dynamic and changes as the art market changes. This greatly informs our investment making decisions. So emerging artists, while they don't fit our criteria today, may very well be the artists that we do lend against three to five years from now. So it's very important for us to keep on on top of all the different dynamics that are going on throughout the art market, not just this very kind of small slice at the top that Athena focuses on from a risks perspective.
1: So, and Cynthia, I just want to elaborate on your point about the track record of an emerging artist. An ideal artist for a loan with Athena Art Finance is an artist with a very strong transactional history on the secondary market, which spans at least 10 years. This kind of market depth takes time to achieve, which is why internally we do track the activity of emerging artists, even though at the moment we're not lending money against the artists in this category. By the time that an artist like this might be eligible to be part of our portfolio, we need to be able to look back on all the data that we've collected through the years to justify now accepting works by these artists as collateral for a loan. So now I'd like to chat about a trend that we think will continue through the first half of 2021 in the art market, and that is the minority and female artist resurgence. How do you think that this will play out and what are the potential side effects? Yeah,
2: very interesting question, Giovanna, and one that we think a lot about. I think it plays out fairly similarly to what we were just talking about. We expect to see certain established black and women artists to move up in our artist liquidity rankings. As I just said, we use data to make our decisions and so we look at liquidity as one of our key factors, obviously, because if you know we do have a default, we need to know that the artworks are liquid and that we can bring them, uh, let's say to auction or even the private market um, and sell them quickly and you know, uh, obtain high recovery for our investors. So that's always our you know, kind of go-to point whenever we look at an investment. Many of these black and women artists, you know, such as Basquiat or uh, Agnes Martin or even Georgia O'Keeffe who have established track records, um, we expect that they'll get stronger and we're happy to continue to obviously lend against these artists. Other artists such as Sam Gilliam that have an established track record, albeit historically not as robust as the ones I just mentioned, where we would have only lent at 30% LTV in the past, uh, we now lend at a 50% LTV. So this will justifiably open up our credit box against these artists, which will enable us to do larger loans and you know grow our portfolio. So um, you know, we're very excited to see more liquidity overall in the market, to see a different mix, um, as trends change, um, we at Athena just have to be sure and smart around our thinking to keep up with this and make sure that we're always lending into the right assets you know, that will, of course, have the best
1: outcomes. Okay, so let's shift gears and dive into some data. Um, we do track primary market and auction-related data and feed both of these into our proprietary models one thing that we saw in 2020 was the hard pivot to predominantly online sales when it was no longer safe or possible really to gather buyers from all over the world into a sale room or a convention center auction houses and art fairs were forced to make this shift to online do you see this continuing into 2021, and if so, how do you think that it will affect sales within the art market?
2: Yeah, that's, it's really important, Giovanna. So uh, I think that the online auction sales are significant legs in 2020 and is absolutely here to stay. I say this because it's a very welcomed, scalable, and efficient way for the auction houses to grow their businesses. However, if you're a true art collector, nothing can replace or replicate viewing a piece of art in person. So I do think the physical experience of buying art will be a huge market focus in 2021. Once the vaccine rollout hits herd immunity inflection point, if it's not 2021, because clearly we're not sure about the timing there as we're kind of slow out of the gate with the vaccine, it should occur in 2022. I think the auction houses will be focusing on how to differentiate themselves by turning the art auction model into an exciting form of entertainment for the broader global market that now has way more accessibility um, than it had in the past given the online format if you recall back to 2018 you know we'll think we'll see more antics that happened then if you recall we had the shredding of the Banksy at Sotheby's, which I think hit kind of the mass media, which many of you may have seen. I think we'll see some fun stuff like that um, and other unique and fun events. I think the auction houses have very creative people in and around the business and they're gonna find interesting ways to make it exciting for us. So they get more viewers, more eyeballs, logging onto their sites for the auctions. So I think it's gonna be a fun year, Uh, hopefully by the end of this year, if not 2022.
1: Okay, so in the spirit of data, we recently compiled our auction insights post-sales recap from a selection of sales from December 2020 from sales at Christie's, Sotheby's, and Phillips. Do you care to walk us through some of our findings?
2: Yep, sure. Um, Would love to. So just to make everyone fully aware, uh, 2020, so a very different auction cycle for the blue chip part of the market than what we have historically seen in the past, uh, in the past decades actually, uh, with, uh, a, which has historically had a very prescribed spring and fall auction season. So what that meant was generally for New York sales, it was in May and November of, of those years and all the auction houses kind of followed lockstep with each other. And essentially their auctions were days apart from each other you know, during those months. Uh, 2020, as we know, was a major shift online, and obviously there was probably you know some chaos early on uh, in the first quarter of 2020 as the auction houses were now trying to figure out, you know, how do they, uh, you know, kind of shift their auctions or cancel them? Um, art fairs were being canceled. It was a very very chaotic time. And the other part of 2020 that was difficult was not just ramping the online format and the timing of that, but also the November presidential election which was historically where the fall auction market would take place, which really forced the auction houses to really think hard about the timing of that and whether they wanted to take the historical road of a November sale or put it before actually after the election. So with that, um, it was interesting to see that Sotheby's kind of was the first one under the gate to make a decision and almost at the last minute, push their auction, their New York auction forward into October which was somewhat unexpected, which pushed them ahead now of the other major auction houses, which are Christie's and Phillips. So just wanted to set the stage there that 2020 was definitely a paradigm year, definitely a year where we saw a lot of changes and everyone was kind of forced to make very, you know, kind of unexpected, I'll say decisions as year rolled out. So, so anyway, w- w- what happened, right? So This then forced Athena to look at the the sales records and and figure out what's an apples to apples comparison here. Um, We don't have what we've had historically, we have to be ahead of it. And the way the auction houses did it, they actually, some of them went around the globe in their auctions online. So they went from Hong Kong to London, to Paris, to New York, all in one sale in many cases. And they were kind of squished together in that regard geographically. So for us, we have to peel it back and we have to focus on an apples to apples comparison. And so the best comparison for for us to to just like quickly hit on now is what happened in the New York market. And New York does happen to be, um, you know, I'll say the largest art market in the world. So it's not a bad, it's not a bad market to focus on. So Giovanna, if we look at slide, this slide, right? The Christie's slide in New York, um, this is their performance for their, let me just see here for their December 2nd, I'm getting that right, sale, it's kind of small. So we see that 31 lots were offered, 26 lots sold. Hammer price sales aggregated 55 million. I say hammer price because that is where the hammer fell. It's not the actual sales that would include the quote-unquote house commission or buyer premium. So I just want to set the stage that we're looking strictly at hammer price, which is important for Athena because that hammer price, if we sold a piece at auction, would be the net realizable value that we would attain to ultimately pay back a loan that we made. So we're always conservative. We're always looking at kind of net realizable value. We're always looking at, you know, sans any transaction costs, et cetera, and on the lower end, and then lend against that and call it a 30 to 50% LTV. And we'll see here that Christ, uh, the Christie's actually had an 84% sell through rate. Well, what does that mean? Is that good or bad? Well, to give a basis of comparison, the historical buy-in rates at the major auction houses are in the 80 to 85% context. So. Christie's fared respectfully um, in regard to that. They were at 84%, so they um, you know, did pretty well. You can see that the majority of lots sold were under 5 million with only two lots or 8% of the lots over 5 million. We see that eight lots are 36% sold uh, lower in the 100K to million dollar range and 16 lots or 52% in the one to $5 million range. So that's all interesting data, but you know it doesn't really mean anything unless we compare it to the other auction houses. So let's now look at Sotheby's and see how they compared in a similar uh, with similar statistics. So what we can see here is that there were somewhat less lots offered than Christie's, but 23 lots sold uh, for, again, a hammer price of 53 million. So only slightly less than Christie's. Um, but they did have less lots offered uh, for though a total of 55 million, and actually they re- received, I'm sorry, achieved a stronger sell-through rate of 92 percent. So that's pretty strong, meaning only 8 percent of the lots were bought in. So that's actually solid performance. We see that 12 lots, uh, or over 50 percent, sold in the hundred to million uh, million dollar range, but nine lots sold between a million and five million. One lot sold for five to 10 million and one lot sold over 10 million. So this is how with less lots, Sotheby's came in relatively on par in terms of sales volume with Christie's because they skewed towards the higher priced price point property or, or artworks. So that's how those two compare. But what's interesting is how they compare to the historically distant third major player in the global auction market, which is Phillips. So Giovanna, if we go to the Phillips slide, so, well, what do we see here? Uh, we see that Phillips came to play. They had 35, much higher, lots offered, 31 sold for a total hammer price of $115 million, which is 100% more in sales than Christie's, um, and obviously similarly to Sotheby's. So while not as strong in terms of the sell-through rate, they were still very, very respectable at 89%. So this was really the talk of the art market. Everyone was super excited about this, particularly Phillips, (laughs) but also everyone was chattering about this and how did they do it? What did they do? So we could see that they had only 11 lots out of the 31 that were in the 100K to $1 million range, but that only kind of 35% of sales versus the others that were more than 50% contacts for Sotheby's and Christie's. 16 lots sold between one and five million, way more than Sotheby's nine, two lots sold for five to 10. As you recall, Sotheby's was one and two lots sold for over 10. So this was an incredible sale for Phillips. And the other really, really important thing for Phillips was that they did incredibly well with emerging black artists who sold at multiples of their low auction estimate. So there were multiple things going on at this sale, and it really put Phillips, I'll say, you know, they, they weren't in the game, but they've always been a distant third, really now in the game with Sotheby's and Christie's, and really, really now exciting to see. They did just, just a fantastic job. So all of that being said, it's important to kind of now on a relative basis, compare them across each other so we can really see how they fared. So as we can see here, to recap, highest sales by hammer Price, as we just said, was Phillips, $115 million, a record for them, and clearly making them the market leader for the auction in New York. Highest sell-through rate, 92% for Sotheby's, that's great for them. But in summary, and just if you look at the chart below, you'll see the green highlights is the high marks, and the pink are the lows, uh, just to give you a sense of you know, where, they, where they all fared. Um, And so if we go to the next slide, Giovanna, is a comparison a little bit differently of Christie's in the blue, Sotheby's in red, and Phillips in yellow. And really I would say, having said all of what I just said, having said that, really actually the most phenomenal thing is that 43% of the lots sold at Phillips, which you can see is in the yellow, performed above estimates versus only 16%. And this this is the low auction estimate versus only 16% for Christie's and 24% for Sotheby's. And actually, if you look at you know within and above, 66% of what was sold at Phillips performed either above or within, above the low auction estimate or with, within the estimates. And if you look at Christie's and Sotheby's, 40% of the lots underperformed the low estimate. And this is actually important for us to see. And why is this important for Athena? You know it's important because you know while we can also see how the lots are distributed on 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 the, the right hand side, and we see that Christie's actually transacted largely in the in the less than million dollar context. It's also important for us to look at it this way to see where is where are the liquid parts of the market, and also who's doing a really good job in their you know kind of auctions and in their in their performance. Because for us at Athena, it's really important for us to see depth and breadth of market in terms of price points, in terms of lots sold. So we know where there is the most liquidity in the market and you know, who's gonna do the best job for us because in a downside case, again, which is always our, our, our look to in an event of default where we need to sell an artwork at auction, we have to analyze data such as this, look at which auction houses perform the best uh, for which artists, you know we'll stratify this data, right? And we'll look at, at the artist level you know who did the best for which artists so that if we do have a default and we do have to bring an artwork to market which auction house is going to do the best for us where are we going to get the highest recovery who's going to work with us um, and perform so we look at the art market in so many different ways macro level which is kind of what we just talked about and then i think everyone's aware um, if you've been on calls with us before we do a lot of micro level analysis at the artist level at the artwork level. We just keep on drilling down, drilling down, because if as asset-based lenders against art, we got to get it right. And we got to do all the homework. And we got to do all the work, which we do. And we have all the analytics to back it up. So yeah, the, that was the New York sales. We were super excited to see how they went uh, during a very
1: difficult year. And we'll see how, what, what 2021 brings. Okay, well, first of all, I would like to say hats off to Phillips, because they did do an absolutely incredible job with this sale that we've just been discussing. Truly, truly impressive. And second, I think that we should maybe explain to the attendees how we analyze the performance versus estimate internally and what the hammer ratio means to our underwriting process. Do you wanna speak about that a little bit, Cynthia?
2: Yeah, so one of the other, st- I'll say ratios or, st- or kind of, I'll say credit statistics for art, you know, we try to borrow all the similar methodologies and analytical means of analyzing the art market as you would in other asset classes, right? We try to apply the same principles. So as we know, art is all relative, right? So art is relatively illiquid uh, to other asset classes, right? Such as you know, equities or, or even you know, the, the major bond markets, et cetera. So we have little data just kind of you know, in that regard when you boil it all down, but the data that we do have, we have to covet and we have to use smartly. So one of the data points that we use is the hammer ratio, which is, and we do it at the artist level and we do it at the artwork level and we roll it all up. And we look to see at the artist level, what price does the hammer fall on or the transaction price or the trade price uh, relative to the low auction estimate, so we get a sense of how well that artist does based on the estimates that are put in the market, which helps us understand the demand level for that artist and/or that artwork. You know, both go hand in hand. So we do generally like to see artists who will perform above their low auction estimate, which would be the low, you know, hammer price that's expected. Clearly, if we see it below one, that's a negative because they're not even reaching. Their low auction estimate and the hammer ratio is obviously showing that in a, in a in a below one number, but one or above shows that they're meeting their low auction estimate or they're actually exceeding it. And I would say, largely, many of the artists and artworks that Athena lends against when we do this analysis largely trade, um, you know, at a hammer ratio of of you know 1.1, 1.2, sometimes 1.5, even higher. And that just continues. That's one other you know data point to give us confidence in lending against the artworks that we do. So yeah, that's, that's how we use that ratio to make smarter decisions.
1: Okay, so we've got a couple of questions that have come in that I think are appropriate to address right now. Uh, the first question is, what is the incentive for the auction houses to have sales so close to one another? I'll maybe start with this and Cynthia, you can add on top of it. Historically speaking, the auction houses would have their sales really close to each other because that was a point in time when all the buyers from all over the world were coming to, say, New York or coming to London for that week or two of sales. So it was their opportunity to gather collectors all at one time who would be there to see the works in person, bid in person. So now that People are largely doing their bidding from home and online because of travel restrictions. It will be interesting to see if the auction houses go back to having their sales back to back with each other within the same week or whether they space them out. Uh, Cynthia, do you have anything that you'd like to add? No,
2: I mean, I think that's spot on. I think, you know, what you may have noticed if you paid attention to the art market over the years is that. While the auctions were kind of cobbled together um, across the major auction houses, there were also fairs that kind of similarly revolved around that. So it was really about the physical presence of the collectors, getting them all in kind of the same room uh, and same place from the city level. And uh, that's how the auction market was working. So uh, it was important to get as many people together and this made it more exciting for everyone to fly from all around the globe to New York or London to hopefully get more bidders in the room,
1: essentially. Yeah, absolutely. So would you like to speak a a little bit about the effect that guarantees have on the market value of an artwork, auction guarantees?
2: So, I mean, the the guarantee is really more important for the seller. So if you're a seller coming to the auction market and you're likely nervous about where the hammer will fall for your piece, the first thing you wanna do is kind of hedge your risk. Uh, and ask for a guarantee, request a guarantee. The auction houses are very selective in, in extending those. And there's two folds to that. First, obviously they don't wanna be the losing side of the trade and they would not wanna extend a guarantee unless they felt confident that the piece was gonna sell at a certain price and obviously price the guarantee appropriately. But the other part of the equation as many on the call probably know, It's, you know, the auction houses historically when they've been the guarantor have gotten burned when the, you know, when the auction didn't perform and they were hit and essentially needed to buy the piece in at that price. So what they do is they turn around and they look for third party guarantors as a backstop. And that is really kind of what what has happened over the last number of years is kind of risk is then laid off to a third party. And so if the, there's there are enough third parties that will guarantee a piece, and obviously there has to be a lot of conversations before the auction for this to happen, and for the consignment to even be made, if you can find that, kind of, that right sweet spot where the consigner is willing uh, at that level that the guarantor is willing to provide a guarantee, that will at least set the mark uh, at the auction. With the idea that, and the guarantor likely hopes that they don't get hit and that the piece trades well through that. So, the, you know, what's always said in the art market is don't guarantee a piece unless you really love it, because you might own it. And so um, so, so that's that. And the reason why auction, uh, I'm sorry, guarantors do this is because if they don't get hit, there's a, you know, there's a fee involved to actually put the guarantee um, out. So there's, uh, you know, there's risk to it. But, you know, there's also, um, you know, economics attached to it as well.
1: Okay, so moving back to our underwriting methodology a little bit, we have a question that says, what other ratios and methods do you use to assess the artworks and their risk? Can you speak a little bit about our scoring methodology that, that you came up with?
2: Yeah, and and, and Giovanni, you know this super well, so I'll chat about it a little bit, but please chime in. So basically what we created was, you know, kind of a, a, a macro level analytic and a micro level analytic. And when I say that macro level being the art market in general, like we talked about, but also the artist level and how liquid the artist is. So what we do is we have historical data on every single artist that we lend against going back about 15 years. We look at the number of trades or the number of lots sold, and this is all in the public market, by the way. So just to be clear, the public market is essentially the auction market, which it only makes up about 50% of the trade volume, where the other 50% is actually the private market. So again, we are data constrained in that we only see half the market, but this is the part of the market that we can observe. And so this is the part of the market that we can make decisions against and have confidence in making those decisions. Um, So we go back about 15 years. Again, we look at the the trade volume, the number of trades, the the prices paid, the averages paid um, over over the course of a year for artworks for that artist. We actually stratify it into paintings and sculptures um, and other forms so that we're always doing an apples to apples comparison. Um, And we're looking at uh, trends as well. So we look at Kagers, compounded annual growth rates as you would in other asset classes through time. And we know that the art market is idiosyncratic. We know that the art market is lumpy. We know that the art market is seasonal. Um, so we factor all of that in as well. And so we try to purify the data so that we can make comparisons because again, art is idiosyncratic. So um, that, that that that's one major part of it. And then at the micro level, because art is idiosyncratic, we have a scoring system at the artwork level that we, um, put in place for every single artwork that we lend against. And there are about, I don't know, Giovanna, 12 factors that we look at so that every artwork is looked at in this, you know, through the same lens. And we weight those factors and we ultimately come up with a score. And that score helps us then on a relative basis understand how the artwork compares to others, but also if it falls below a certain score, we won't lend against that artwork. And then we have other you know, kind of adjustments and factors for the diversification of the artwork collateral pool and you know, some, some other f- factors that are important. And this way, then we look at our portfolio, we know where the risk is, right? We know where the scores are uh, you know, the, the lowest, our, our rating scale is a one to five scale. So five being the worst, one being the best. It helps us really analyze the portfolio, understand our risk, understand our concentrations and help manage the, the book appropriately. Um, and, uh, and then as we look forward into doing new loans, we always look back and understand what the portfolio looks like and perform the portfolio for, what, what, for what's coming. So we take a multifaceted approach. We try to be dynamic and, and look at robust data, but it's, you know, it, we had to build all this and,
1: you know, continually maintain and, and, and continue to make it better. And without getting into the nitty gritty details of how we score these artworks individually, I'll just note that. Probably the most important factors that we look at are the provenance, the condition of the piece, what the piece looks like compared to the rest of the artist's body of work. Is this what you want from the artist? Is it not what you want from the artist? That kind of speaks to the desirability of each piece. We look at whether the signature is there, how extensively something has been written about or exhibited. So we, we definitely do a deep dive, but those are just some of the most important factors that we analyze uh, on the, on the artwork level.
2: I I would just add one of the other interesting things that we look at is how has the artwork been auctioned in the past, which is a good fact pattern, um, but also could be a negative fact pattern in that if an artwork was just auctioned and um, we needed to bring it back to auction within a year or two and it wasn't quote unquote fresh to the market, it wouldn't be viewed well and actually probably wouldn't perform very well. The art market loves fresh to market as they say, our artworks, ones that have been in private hands for call it 20, 30, 40 years that have never been seen. And so it's very interesting to balance that dynamic and for us to know that artworks if they came to market would be, um, you know, the, 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 the market would be excited to see it and obviously then bid it up, you know, which is always our focus. So uh, we look at factors like that as well.
1: Okay, so I think we have time for maybe one more question. Uh, let's shift gears again. This question, it says, do you consider what the money you lend against artwork is used for? This is an important one that I think you should address.
2: Yes, absolutely. So, so um, a, a couple of different things about that. We are lenders. We are not a regulated lender like a bank, but we have, you know, policies and procedures around, you know, KYC, AML type issues. Uh, so it's very important for us to know who our borrower is. It's very important for us to know what the money is being used for, because we need to ensure that the money is used for proper reasons. Um, and also it's important for us to know because depending on what the money is being used for and validating that it's proper, that it's also a way for us to understand how we will get eventually repaid on the loan. So you know, there might be a real estate purchase or private equity purchase, which is away from the artworks. So if we're just taking the artworks as collateral, then we just look at the artworks even you know, harder and sometimes if new artwork is coming into the pool, because of the money that's being lent, many investors will just grow their art pools by borrowing money and levering their collections. It helps us understand that actually our risk will go down over time because the art pool will be diversified as these acquisitions happen and come into uh, you know, the, the collateral pool for the loan. Uh, so it's, it's a very actually dynamic conversation that we have with our borrowers to make sure that kind of all the bells and whistles, um, you know, are in place and that everything checks out properly and that um, the money is being used uh, in in an appropriate way.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Cynthia. With that, let's wrap up this webinar. I'd like to remind everyone to visit www.yieldstreet.com to learn more about our offerings and come realize your next level with us. If you're an originator, be sure to click through to the Raise Capital page or reach out to the Originations team. Their email address is originations at yieldstreet.com. And if you enjoyed this webinar, stay tuned because we release content on a regular basis. You can find this recording on YouTube and please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more webinars like this. Thank you everyone, stay safe and healthy. Thanks everyone, thanks Giovanna. Thanks, Cynthia.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at Yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host who is an associated person of Yieldstreet and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yieldstreet or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment product. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. Trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10 percent. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at YieldStreet.com.